It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And this is the Virtual Bible Study for June 26, 2014. We're glad that you've joined us tonight. Thank you for uh, your participation. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, joins me. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight on the Virtual Bible Study. Good to be with you as well. We want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ and that you can participate in the program in one of three ways. Uh, 877-381-4567 is the toll-free line. Questions at collegeu.com is the email address. And if you're listening to us live tonight, the chat window to the bottom of your video feed is up and ready for your participation. Jacob, we also want to uh, announce again an upcoming event here in Columbia, Tennessee. The College View Church here is sponsoring what we're calling simply a community Bible study. It's going to be at a well-known public building here in downtown Columbia, the Memorial Building on West 7th Street. If you're not real familiar with Columbia, that's just two blocks west of the downtown square. And uh, easy to find. It's going to be on July 21st and 22nd. Kevin Clark, who's an attorney from Birmingham, Alabama, is going to lead our study, and the subject is going to be about homosexuality. Right. It's a very important topic. It's all in the news. We're hearing continually about uh, the courts striking down uh, same-sex marriage bans in state after state after state. Falling like dominoes. Yeah. And so this is something that's really an important matter uh, for those who have moral convictions. It's an issue of great concern. The first night, Monday night, July 21st, is going to be discussing what the Bible says about homosexuality, what God says Mm -hmm. uh, about homosexuality. And then the second night, I think, will be really interesting, too, especially since uh, Kevin Clark is an attorney and is dealing with some of these matters from a legal basis. He's going to talk about how we as Christians today should react to this moral dilemma. Uh, Certainly, everybody's saying we ought to be very tolerant, tolerate, 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 accept, embrace. And uh, he, he's going to look at what the Bible would tell us about how we should react to those who are practicing homosexuality in our culture. All right. That's in the, at the Memorial Building, Columbia, Tennessee. July 21st and 22nd. It'll be at 7 o'clock each night. And if you are outside of the Columbia, Tennessee area, you want to travel uh, to Columbia, you can uh, give directions on how to get there. Yeah, it's real easy. I mean, if you if you find the downtown square in Columbia... We're just two blocks west of that at the Memorial Building. All right. Well, good. If you've got questions, questions at collegeview.com. And along those lines, tonight we're going to talk about some questions that have been sent to questions at collegeview.com. You know, we always invite people to send in their questions, Jacob, so it would be uh, unfair and remiss of us to not deal just with them. Just throw them away. Once in a while. When, you yeah. know, so what I do, I, I tell you, I'm the, I'm the one who fields these uh, questions by email. And so I just stack them up, and then periodically we get in the stack and pull some out and try to deal with them. All right, and so, you try and get some that are interesting, and you've done that tonight. Four yeah, questions, four yeah. questions with multiple parts. Right, uh, two of the two of the four have multiple parts, but we're just gonna, we're not going to read them all ahead of time. We're just going to read them as we deal with all them, right. Remem- we're gonna, remembering that 
if you could have got these questions and been studying up on our discussion ahead of time if you were on our email update list yeah. uh, every Thursday about noon. But today just, was a little late today, but usually about noon we send out the update describing what our discussion will be that night and giving some questions. You were, for you were feedback. a little late today, but just to keep you from flipping over to World Cup soccer, let's uh, let's tease you a little bit with some of the things we're going to talk about we're tonight. We're going to talk about can you quote uninspired sources yeah. We're going to talk about dealing with differences, uh, oh. congregational differences. Yeah. People congreg- differences of opinion, differences yeah. of uh, conviction. And we're going to talk about prayer, uh, especially about the idea, can you be repetitive in prayer? Yeah, right. And then we're going to talk about uh, the one cup, using one cup to observe the Lord's Supper. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting discussion tonight. We hope you'll stay tuned. And if you've got uh, comments, we'll welcome those tonight. If you've got questions, again, that you'd like discussed in this format, send them in. And uh, we can include them in a future edition of the program. And, hey, maybe we can sneak one in tonight. So if you've got questions, send them to questions at collegeview.com. All right. We're going to start out with a question from Texas. And the questioner says, uh, on a list I am following, there's one person who says, if we read the writings of Restoration or even modern-day writers, we are following them and not the Bible. The most famous being Campbell. We are Campbellites or even Lipscomb. When we read Lipscomb's writings, we are following him and not the Bible exclusively. He believes we should use only the Bible. What is your opinion? Well, my uh, my answer to that would be writing is just a form of communication. If I can't read what someone else has uh, written, I can't listen to what someone else yeah, says. Reading something that somebody wrote would be no different than listening to the virtual Bible study. Listening or, to a sermon. Or listen to a sermon when you're in a church service. I, I immediately thought of the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, you know, Philip was teaching him, and so it was not wrong for the eunuch to get some help in understanding the scriptures. And uh, some might want to read what other people have said as a, a help to maybe understand the scriptures better. Not to, to throw caution to the wind, obviously. We've got to be careful about what we're listening, reading. And, and, and I actually thought that this question was sort of oxymoronic. Oh. If you get self-contradictory. Okay. Why should we be reading what this guy says? He wrote this. In the, on this in, list. In, in a, which he's condemning reading what uninspired people have written. That is sort you of know, an oxymoron. So he posted to a list something he had written. To give advice or instruction about what he thinks is, you know, is spiritually right or wrong. That's, I hadn't thought about that. That's sort of like the people who say who judge us for judging. Yeah, you can't judge. You're being judgmental. Yeah. The Bible says don't judge. Well, when they say that, they are they are judging us. Okay. So it, it's, it's sort of a self contradictory view. Money, hold on, money. There you go. Now I got you. Also, he's asked for uninspired men. Sent this in to uninspired men to for a comment or a question or advice, however he posed it. So he's still doing the same thing himself. Yeah, All right. Yeah, exactly right. Now, I, I was thinking about this a little bit today, and I like your point uh, that you know, of course, the quibble could be that Philip was inspired. Okay. You know, might be. Uh, Timothy wasn't, and he was supposed to be teaching other people. Okay. Apollos apparently wasn't. No, he wasn't. Uh, uh, well, at least in some of the things he was saying. Well, I've actually got the inspired Apostle Paul yeah. quoting uninspired sources. Yeah. In his famous sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, he was in the city of Athens, and he quoted a philosopher named Epimenides in chapter 17, verse 28 that of Acts. That sounds like a skin condition. It probably is, sort okay. of. But he said, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Okay. So... 
Here's Paul. He's inspired of the Holy Spirit to reference an uninspired person make to make a point uh, in, in drawing a spiritual conclusion. Yeah. So I, I would argue that that's not wrong. Then Paul shows it wrong. And there's another. Here's an interesting one in in Titus. It turns out Paul must have been a reader of this Epimenides because he quoted him again in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Okay. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Okay. And so my point in that is here's the inspired apostle Paul writing by inspiration quoting uninspired sources in order to prove his point. And so I would argue that that we can read after uninspired people too. We can't take what they say in contradiction to the scriptures, right. but if what they say is is helps uh, illuminate the point, then Paul was doing that and I think we could do that. All right. Now again, we'd have to be careful. Uh we don't want to be reading things that are in error and uh and allowing them to lead us astray, but there's certainly no fault in uh looking to someone for help. And understanding the scriptures. Hey, I've got a side point here, Jacob, side uh, point. Okay. on this Titus 1, verse 12. This is not related to the question okay. that was asked, but I think we've dealt with that question. I, th- I think that guy is way off base when he says you can't read or reference uninspired religious writings. All right. We can, but certainly not in contradiction to scripture. All right. Take us on your tangent. Well, this Epimenides that Paul quoted two times in Acts 17 and here in Titus 1, verse 12. There's a thing called, and I, I just came across this. I thought it was kind of intriguing. There's a thing called the Epimenides Paradox. <laughs> and what he, what Man. it is is this. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Well, if he was one of their own and Paul said they are always liars, then he was lying when yeah. he said Christians are always liars. Yeah. So he he said, but he says this is true. So he takes the if he's a Christian and he said he was, he was one of their own, and if he said it, it was a lie because Christians are always liars. Yeah. But then Paul said, but it's true. It can't be both. That Christians can't always lie and at the same time be saying something that's true. I'm getting busy and, here. Yeah. Well, the, the crazy thing is some people would have made the point, and this is what I came across in reading. Some people have tried to make the point that this proves that Paul was not inspired because he made a logical, paradoxical statement. Uh, something that could not be logically true. Right. Well, uh, there's an easy explanation for that, and what it is is, of course, that it says that he was a prophet. Another over here in Acts 17, it says he was a poet. Those people are prone to use what we refer to as hyperbole, right? Exaggeration for emphasis, right? And that's what we've got here. We've got an exaggerated statement: Christians are always liars. Well, I mean, I've known some pretty terrible liars in my day. You couldn't trust much of what they said at all, but they didn't always lie. You know, if they said, I think Monty, you were making a point. If they said the sun is shining. That wouldn't necessarily be a lie. They, they're bad liars. They you lie. You might go so. check, but you know, even if you knew it was noon, you might go check just yeah. to be sure because of their reputation. Yeah. But you would still know that occasionally they told the truth. All right. right. It might be something like Monty talks about hunting all the time. Well, that's that's, 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 that's a perbole. But, but I hadn't mentioned it tonight yet. 
Yeah. No, but you you will probably will before it's all said and done. Yeah. But that's hyperbole. That's yeah. exaggeration for emphasis. Yeah, right. That's what Paul okay. was doing there. Okay. Okay. Aaron in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, says, I suppose it depends on what you mean by using the writings of these men. If I adopt something as my belief because Alexander Campbell said it, then I am a Campbellite. If I adopt a practice because it's what Lipscomb did, then I have taken Lipscomb as my authority, and he is not a proper source of authority. However... I use the writings of other men in an attempt to gain perspective on what the Bible teaches to be sure that I understand the different sides of a question as my as I formulate my view of what God teaches. Then reading their writings is no different from having a discussion with somebody about Bible subjects. We should be able to consider other people's points of view, no matter whether they are spoken or written. Religious things are either are either of heaven or of men. But many uh, times men write things that reflect divine teaching. And there is no reason not to read them if I continue to search the scriptures to find out if those things are so. Now, having said that, I am aware that some people consider themselves restorationist in the sense that they say they are trying to restore the principles of the 18th century restoration movement. And perhaps they do not. They do adopt certain ideas to imitate preachers of that era. They are aiming themselves at a target that is 17 centuries too late and not inspired. Thank you, Eric. I think that's right. You know, we we have dealt with the accusation that we are followers of Campbell Mm -hmm. uh, on the virtual Bible study in the past. Uh, There were a number of things that Campbell said and did that I would not agree with. Mm -hmm. We're not following Campbell in in so much that Campbell set forth principles that are biblically based. Then we would concur with him. But we offer no allegiance to Alexander Campbell or any other of the restoration uh, preachers and teachers uh, we can admire the work they did. We can uh, concur with some conclusions they reached, but in so much as they taught things that were different from the Bible, we wouldn't follow them any, any more than anyone else. We we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We're disciples. We are His disciples, and the Bible is our authority. All right. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. When we get back from our break, we've got a question about. Differences among members in the congregation. Somebody's wanting to force their opinion. Is that yeah, something we should do? Yeah, let's see what we can do with And that. then what about a member who assembles with a congregation who is in sin? How do you treat that person? And uh, should their presence become a divisive issue among members? So some potentially divisive issues are the questions uh, that we'll be considering on the other side of the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study will continue right after this. Don't go anywhere. You might miss something. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after this. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Here's some quotes worth pondering. Life is like a ladder. Every step we take is either up or down. Courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, others are emboldened to do what is right. Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Going to church regularly is like making a path in the forest. The oftener you travel it, the less obstructions you'll find in the way. 
Man, wish I'd said that. How about logging off of Facebook and getting into God's book? The virtual Bible study continues. Back on the program tonight, talking about listener questions. Again, we remind you to submit your questions at collegeview.com. From a listener in Tennessee now, we move on to another question. A two-parter, and I don't know that they're necessarily related. They could be, but not necessarily. First part of the question, or the, the first question asked was, how should a congregation deal with differences between members? Can one side force their opinion on others? What do you think about that, Jacob? Well, absolutely not. Can we uh, force our opinions on others? Uh, let's see here. I meant to have a verse. Uh, uh, you probably know it already. Submit uh, yourselves uh, to... First Peter 5, 5. Yeah, 5, 5. There you go. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Likewise, uh, you all of uh, you be subject... One to another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and giveth great the humble. I think that verse alone would be enough answer to that. Well, I, I actually got uh, uh, I'm, that's part of the answer. That's part of the answer. I okay. don't think that's the full answer. Oh, now, okay. Now, if if the way that question is worded, if they're pressing their human opinions, then okay. you can't. You okay. can't. We got to go First Peter five five. Uh, but but to to sort of broaden out this discussion, what what? So we we've got differences between members. That's true. All right. So I th- the first question you've got to ask is, are they doctrinal issues? That's true. If they're doctrinal, then it's not a matter of one per- one party or one side pressing their opinion on another. If it's doctrinal, we've got to take a stand for the truth, irregardless of who's on what side or whatever. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul was uh, deal, in Galatians 2 verse 5 he was dealing with some false teachers who were dr- trying to bind circumcision on Gentile converts which was not true yep. it was doctrinally false and Paul said to whom we gave place by subjection no not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you yep. and so in regards to these differences between members I think the first question you've got to ask is is it, is it doctrinal if it's doctrinal we can't yield not at all yep uh, uh, in regards to things that are taught in the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's judgment, if it's a matter of judgment, and and I think maybe in the question that might be implied when he said they had an opinion. If it's just a question of judgment, you know, what color are we going to paint the walls? What time are we going to set Sunday night services? Mm-hmm. Uh, so forth. I should be willing to submit, as you read in First Peter five verse five, we're to submit to one another mm-hmm. and be humble. Uh, so I think you got to dis- you got to know what kind of an issue is at stake there before you can really answer the question. There should not be sides. The, the, the fact of the matter is there should not be sides. If it's a doctrinal issue, everybody ought to be in agreement about what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to work at that. It's not always the case in congregations for sure, but we ought to work at coming to a common agreement about the Word of God. Because God's word allows that. If we will apply ourselves, we can understand the Bible alike. Yeah. But if it's a matter, if and if it's a matter of judgment, there shouldn't be sides there either. You mm-hmm. know, I might have an opinion. I might want green walls. You might want red. Mm-hmm. My opinion is not necessarily better than yours, and I should be willing yeah. to submit. Yeah. And, and so we shouldn't have sides about judgment matters. There shouldn't be sides. There, yeah. there shouldn't that, that denotes division within a congregation that shouldn't exist. Yeah, let's go back to that, uh, the, the doctrinal issue, though, because that is the potential. I mean, the, on the opinions thing, we there's there should never be a reason to to have division over that. There may be reason for division on doctrinal issues, 
but we need to make sure that we approach those situations with the desire that there not be division. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, because I've known, I'm afraid in the past, uh, Christians who were sort of happy that there were doctrinal issues because it was then a legitimate excuse to be divisive. Yeah, I've actually known people who actually took some delight in there being controversy stirred up yeah. in a local congregation, yeah. which I think is just so absolutely bizarre. Yeah. Uh, it's wrong. It's sinful. Yeah. And I, I think just weird to enjoy controversy. <laughs> well, break it down there for us. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. But uh, and uh, so when these uh, doctrinal issues do present themselves, then that needs to be doctrinal purity needs to be our ultimate concern here. But we also ha- need to have a, a side concern here that we maintain unity, if at all possible, by resolving to agree upon the scriptures and uh, yeah, and, and, and a common understanding. You know, uh, in Ephesians. Paul's used the expression, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Yeah. And the word endeavoring means put forth some effort at that, will you? You know, would, would you, would you try? Will you work at it? If there's, if there's points of friction, will you, are you, are you going to just keep them agitated or are you going to, are you going to endeavor to resolve those issues and, and be at peace? We resolve doctrine issues by going to the Word of God. We resolve judgment and opinion matters by submitting to one another. Absolutely. 877-381-4567, questions at collegeview.com. Aaron in Baton Rouge says, I'm not sure whether this is one question or two, but I'm going to assume they are two unrelated questions. A, uh, and this is the first part, he said, no, there should not be a case where one side forces a particular practice on the other side. In fact, we ought not to have sides, although I understand there are there may be groups with different ideas about the best course of action. In the absence of elders, we ought to be able to find a course that is acceptable to both sides. Assuming that this is a matter of judgment, we should follow the principle that we respect the preferences of others, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It ought to be possible for honest brethren to find a course of action that is suitable to all sides, even if it isn't exactly what everybody wants. I don't mean to suggest that it's an easy; it is easy to find that course. And no, thank sometimes, you. sometimes it's pretty hard. And part of the problem is that it's not easy because it requires quite a bit of humility. Yeah, and and we don't always have the humility we need in those things. Yep. But I, I agree that we ought to, if we're if everything is the way it ought to be, especially in matters of judgment or or just you know judgment calls we ought to be able to submit and but how often have we heard unfortunately through the years that a congregation split there was a division but someone was quick to explain it wasn't it wasn't about doctrine it was just personalities what they're saying then is it it wasn't it wasn't a justifiable thing it was a sinful thing that happened there absolutely and uh so it's not easy because it requires humility it's not also not easy money because it requires us to act like big boys and girls and uh and we can't always get our way and we can't uh if people don't agree with us throw our sucker in the dirt as they say and walk off mad we've got to make sure that we want to work this out just behaving like adults is sometimes a major challenge for us yeah yes it is yes it is all right Uh, let's go to the second question asked from this same questioner it says if a visitor or past member assembles with a congregation and it is known that most but not all members consider them to be in sin, <clears throat> how should they be treated? Should their present be, presence become a divisive issue among the members? All right. 
And then he references, he says, you might cons- he says considering Revelation 2, 15 and 16. All right, now, uh, I, again, there, there's some background here that we don't know that would be absolutely vital to make a, a, a hard and fast answer to this question. Okay. But if you went to Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 15, the Lord is speaking to the church at Pergamos, and he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Uh, I got to believe there that the problem with the church at Pergamos was that these false teachers, uh, they would have been sin, they would have been in sin, but they, the, the church had not identified them as false teachers. The church was tolerating them. The church was fellowshipping them. Uh, thou hast, thou hast, uh, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Um, so, that terminology suggests that these false teachers were still in full fellowship of the church and they hadn't done anything to try and correct the matter. They were being tolerant of false doctrine. And so that – now, we couldn't do that. No. Uh, uh, certainly couldn't do that. The problem, I think, there is the church had not identified those false teachers and had not withdrawn themselves from those false teachers. Yeah, uh, this, that, it's not justification for that situation to to continue. And I think some people might look to that passage as, well, see, that that wasn't a perfect church and, and it was okay. No, they needed they No, Lord was saying it. repent or I'm going to come. Right, right. And, 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 and then this would have been similar in a sense to the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where the church at Corinth had this immoral member who was living in open fornication mm-hmm. And they, they hadn't done anything about it. They were tolerating that. They were allowing that condition, condition to exist without addressing it. And Paul condemned them for that, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, and I think that's a pretty well known text. So, okay. so now take those couple of instances. A, a, a visitor or past member assembles with the congregation is known that most but not all members consider them to be in sin. How should they be treated? Well, if the person's not a member there, then you'd have to think that they've either been withdrawn from or somehow or another has been identified that they're not in the fellowship of that local congregation because our questioner identifies them as a visitor or a past member. Yes. Now, that being the case, if they're not being tolerated, the fellowship, they're not being, you know, continued fellowship and toleration of sinful things is not the, the question. Then, uh, if it is, in other words, if the church is tolerating sin, false teaching or moral impurity, then that's not, that's not correct and that has to be fixed. But if this, in fact, was, is a visitor or past member who's not in the fellowship of the local congregation, um, then... I don't think that you can uh, throw up a bar and say you can't come in. We, we don't practice closed assemblies. You know, uh, in, in fact, uh, we may have a chance to influence them, to teach them or encourage them to repent uh, by virtue of the fact that they still want to have some uh, relationship or connection with people who are in the church. Paul said in Second Timothy or Second Thessalonians three verse fifteen. Concerning a person who had, in fact, been withdrawn from, count him not as an enemy, right. but admonish him as a brother. Mm-hmm. So uh, those things, that, that, I think that'd be my answer. If they're not, in other words, if, if this is not denoting the fact that the church is 
endorsing or tolerating a person who is sinful, but but that this sinful person visits the, the congregation's assemblies, I don't see anything wrong with that. No, but this person needs to understand that uh, that there are, there are issues that need to be resolved. Right. Uh, Aaron says, I do not believe anyone should close off the assembly to anyone who wants to be present, even if such a one has been marked as being in sin. But I assume from the question that this is not one from whom the congregation has withdrawn itself, though I might be wrong. The key is how we treat them when they are there. We ought not to express support for their sin or ignore it, but I think we should. Uh, but I don't think we should lock our doors either. We have rebuked the sin, and we have an opportunity to admonish as a brother. One of the purposes for coming together is to provoke, provoke unto good behavior, Hebrews 10, 4, 24 and 25. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so, again, I, that should not be a divisive thing. In other words, uh, if the, yes, if the congregation is endorsing or fellowshipping a sinful situation, then that's got to be addressed. But if this is a person who's just visiting the assembly, you know, actually, Jacob, Every visitor who comes to our assemblies is a sinner. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and so you know, we just can say, "Well, you can't come in. You're a sinner. You know, you're not. You, you have no. We're not going to do that." So I, I think that the answer would be no. And certainly, it shouldn't become a divisive issue among members. Uh, we, we've got to be clear that we're not we're not endorsing the sin, but neither should we be hateful in the matter either. Well. Let me just clarify. You said every visitor to our assemblies is a sinner, and that's not necessarily the case. Well, maybe an infant. Or maybe someone who's traveling through. No, but they're a sinner, too. I mean, Oh, you're saying everyone. Yeah, 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 yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, us, yeah, yeah, yeah right. We're all sinners. That's yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. Well, let's see. We need to get a bullet point. And when we get back, we're going over over the pond to England. Now, this is an interesting question. When you sent it, uh, I thought, well, this is interesting. Uh, if God's will is done anyway, why pray for it to be done? Jesus told us in the Lord, in the model prayer, "Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." Why pray for it if it's gonna be if it's gonna happen anyways? Hmm. And uh, well, is it wrong to pray repetitively when Jesus taught us the parable of the persistent widow? You remember that one, Monty? Yes. Persistent widow. Yeah. Um. And uh, if uh, if uh, if we're not supposed to pray repetitively, then what was he saying in that parable? Let's uh, hear from you on the phone, over email, or in the chat room tonight. And Aaron is in the chat room on our first question about whether you should read from other people or if you should try and uh, imitate other people. Aaron, Aaron has got a memory here. He knew he had heard this, I think, and he went back and found it in February of 2010 that we – had a quote from a, a congregation that said, we are rediscovering who we were in the 19th century. So there really are people who are trying to restore the restoration movement. Maybe they do quote Campbell Lipscomb for the wrong reasons, he says. So these yeah. people were going back and trying to imitate yeah. that rather yeah. than... We're not in that camp. All right. For sure. Well, Aaron has got a good memory tonight. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break. When we get back, uh, we'll continue the discussion. Don't go anywhere. We'll continue after this week's bullet point. Got a question about something you've heard on the virtual Bible study? Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. We'll be right back after this. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. The Gallup pollsters regularly conduct surveys about the religious beliefs of people in America. Some of the most interesting statistics have to do with the view of people regarding heaven and hell. 
Typical results are like these from a previous survey. 78% believe in heaven. Among those who believe in heaven, the percent that think they have a fair, good, or excellent chance of going there, 94%. 60% of Americans believe in hell. Among those who do believe in hell, the percent that think they might go there are probably 4%, uncertain 19%, very little chance of going 77%. These numbers are particularly interesting when viewed in light of what the Bible clearly teaches. Jesus said in Matthew 7, beginning verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. It's not difficult to see why so few are really committed to a diligent pursuit of Christianity. They simply don't believe they need it. They're going to heaven anyway. It's time people began to wake up and realize that they are lost and doomed to hell unless they obey the Lord. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the Virtual Bible Study. God's Word has the answers. Let's get back to studying it. The Virtual Bible Study rolls along. And we're back on the program. We're talking to James Buchanan today. He is in South Africa, yeah, that's, not that, in Columbia. That, that, that little ad blurb is way out of date because James... Uh, Gave up his secular work and moved to South Africa to preach. And so, and he still listens to the program, but he doesn't listen live because it's in the middle of the night. So unless yeah. he has insomnia tonight, he hasn't heard that yeah, live. We, we, get, we get to use the day, the last. Everybody on the other side of the world, they used, they used Thursday already, and right. it's Thursday night and in places already Friday. We're, yeah. we're on the tail end of the day here. Yeah. So, well, anyways, appreciate James for his work. Appreciate him listening to the program. And we appreciate you listening. We want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, where you can find out uh, more about the College of Church, what we believe, what we practice. Here are sermons that were presented to the College of Church of Christ recently, as well as find archives for every virtual Bible study from our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We're coming close to our ninth anniversary, almost nine a year's worth of programs uh, for you to listen to there. You will not catch up. If you have not uh, listened to us from the start at this point, don't bother trying to catch up unless you've got a whole lot of time on your hand. But uh, what, what is our anniversary date there, it's, a, it's in July, and we're getting close to that. Uh, uh, so July, July 20, 28th, yep. 2005 was the first one. So uh, anyhow, uh, you can find a wide variety of subjects discussed there. And if you are looking and you don't see it uh, as of former uh, topic for the program, send it in as a suggestion. We'd love to hear from you. Questions at collegeview.com. All right. From a listener in England, we go to our next question. He's got two questions that both deal with prayer. First, if God's will is done anyway, why pray for it to be done? And he references the the so-called Lord's Prayer, or we often call it the model prayer. Mm -hmm. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, beginning verse 9, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Uh, And then it goes on, and I think we're familiar with that prayer. But Jesus said we should pray. Uh, So maybe the most simple answer to the question, if God's will is going to be done in a way, why pray for it to be done? Because Jesus said to. Jesus said it. Because Jesus said to. But really, when you stop to think about it, I think what he's and notice, he says, pray that the Father's will be done in earth as it is done in heaven. In heaven, the will of God is done perfectly. Yes. Right. And so we're praying that 
on earth, we we could attain to the to the ideal of heaven to do God's will perfectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, th- there is a sense in which God brings His will to pass on earth. Yes, you know? uh, but that but that does not mean that it is constantly being done. You know, if I go out and rob a bank tonight, that is not the will of God. Right now, he, He'll bring about His will. And I, and 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 ultimately, I will pay the consequence for violating his will. But his will is not being done if I'm out there robbing banks. Yeah. So it is not the fact that God's will is is always flawlessly being carried out on earth. His his ultimate will will be done. Uh, his his long term intentional will will be done. But that's not to say that in the immediate time frame I am doing his will in my life. And so the prayer is that men, all men, myself and all others, as I pray that prayer, all men will come to do the will of God. All right. Um, and, yeah, so the prayer is uh, is for myself as well as other people. Yeah. And primarily for myself and uh, that I would be doing the Father's will. By email, Aaron has said, but God's will is not always done. Plenty of things happen that God does not wish to happen. Because we are creatures who choose our own course and our choice is not always in harmony with the will of God. This particular verse, Matthew 6, 10, it's also found in Luke 11, verse 2, is not expressing a wish for God to do what he wants. It's expressing a desire that we might do what God wants for our will to conform to his. We are expressing something about ourselves and our desire to submit to God. I think that's exactly right. Okay. So I think that part is pretty easy, uh, you know. Uh, but as I said uh, you know, starting out, why should we pray for God's will to be done? Because Jesus said to. Yeah. If we didn't have any other reasoning behind it, that'd be enough. But we, I think we do. Appreciate Aaron for commenting uh, via email tonight and in the chat room. And except for Aaron in the chat room, it's all crickets there tonight. So join yeah. in the discussion with Aaron. Yeah. The second question from England is, if we are not to pray repetitively, then what is Jesus teaching in the parable of the persistent widow, Luke 18, verses 2 through 7? If not, that we get answers by persistence. Let me read that real quick in Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 2. Uh, there was a, in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual, continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cried day and night to him, though he bear long with them? I do think, in fact, we should pick up the very first verse of chapter 18, which explains what the purpose of the parable was. Luke 18, 1, he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Jesus was actually teaching us to be persistent in prayer. Right. That we should be persistent. Now, there's there's an important distinction. Yeah. Uh, Jesus condemned uh, a certain type of repetitions, but not all repetitions. In, Je- in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he condemned vain repetitions. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that shall be heard for their much speaking. So the, the heathens uh, were guilty of just reciting something. Well, not well, to be. I, I, you not, know, they, they, it was clear they wanted attention from men. In that context, Jesus was talking about those who were doing things to be seen of men. Yeah. And so, uh, 
verse 6, Matthew 6, verse 6, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut the door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Don't be, verse 5, when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. So the kind of repetitions that he's condemning were those of those hypocrites who were spouting long and repetitious prayers just to get men to see them and admire them for their great skill at praying. All right. Now, the fact of the matter is that we have an example even from Jesus of repetitive prayer. We've cited this before. I think it's interesting. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest uh, and then leading up to his crucifixion, he prayed... Remember the famous expression in his prayer, verse 39, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Um, and and so he came back, found his disciples asleep. In verse 42, it says, He went a second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Verse 44, he, 43, he comes back, finds them asleep again. Verse 44, he left them and went again, away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. So there's Jesus repetitive in prayer. Yeah. And so it's not that we repeat ourselves. It's not that we say the same words. It, it uh, the, the kind of repetition that is forbidden is vain repetition okay. in Matthew chapter 6. All right. Paul did the same thing, prayed for something three times. Uh and so certainly repetition is not an error. Uh, Guest 891 says Catholics are a good example of vain repetition in their prayers. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that, but they do just recite. In fact, a a Catholic might be told to recite 50 Hail Marys or whatever, you know. Which is wrong on another another level. level, but, But the idea is that's just repetition, repetition, repetition. And that may very well be vain repetition. Repetition, I mean, you, to, to, of course, again, Hail Mary's praying to Mary is a whole other question. But if I prayed the same prayer six times, it might be vain repetition. You'd have to know my heart to know whether I was being vain in that. But God does yeah. know my heart. Yeah. And that's and that's the one who will judge that. All right. Monty, yes. It might be that I repeat the same prayer on more than one occasion for a purpose. It may be I've got a sick relative. And they've been in the hospital. Maybe they've got cancer and they're going through the, the difficulties of that. It's a life-threatening thing. I might pray on a very regular basis that they can get well and overcome this and, and, and live a long and, and healthy life after that. Because this is an ongoing thing. It's, it's not a vain thing. I'm serious about it every time. But at the same time, it's not wrong to repeat the prayers. We've, we've been talking about it. It might be something that goes on for a long time. Isaac and Rebecca had been married for 20 years, but it says that at at that time, after 20 years, that Isaac prayed fervently to God, and God granted them a child or children. So I have to imagine that somewhere in that 20 years, he had mentioned that prayer to God more than once, because people expect to have children more often than that when they're trying. Well, Monty, I'm sure there are some things you pray for every day, as there are with Monty's me. Monty's got a helper yeah. there on the camera. Uh, he does. He's, I think he, <laughs> sort of like uh, you know people on the Good Morning America or whatever, waving in the background there. Uh, uh, um, we saw you on the camera, Micah. Okay, yeah, we might cut that out there. Um, okay, did we answer that one? Yeah, I think we got that. I might read Aaron's quick response. He's in agreement. Uh, when Jesus talks about vain 
repetitions, Matthew 6, 7, it is in the context of praying in a fashion that makes a showy display of piousness. Jesus is not saying that we should not be persistent, but that we don't put on a show. And this was one of the ways that people put on a show. Also, Jesus is careful to call it vain repetition. I think we all understand that we can do something mindlessly over and over again until it loses meaning. I do not believe Jesus says anything here about heartfelt requests that are repeated. I okay. agree. Now, I might make a little bit of a clarification, though. I think we do learn something from Paul. I mean, at some point, we need to leave it to God. Uh, you know, if I've got uh, you know, my arthritis, I want my arthritis to go away. I think Paul will give us an example as we make our petition to God and we do it. He did have a revelation. That's the thing. That's the, that's the difference I would point out is that Paul received a, a, a an answer by revelation. Uh, he says, uh, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, 2 Corinthians 12, 8, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So Paul got a direct answer. And then that was why he shut that down. He didn't yeah, have to true. ask anymore. That's true. Okay. Maybe there, maybe there isn't a limit then. All right. Well, let us know your thoughts. Uh, we'll take a break. Go to the top of the hour. We get back. Now, we've saved maybe the more difficult one to the last. Yeah. We got a question about using one cup in observance of the Lord's Supper. What and, do you think about that? And I that? thought we had talked about that on the virtual Bible study in the past, Jacob. But looking through the archives, I don't think we have. Well, you could almost spend a whole program on that. We might. But this will at least uh, get that uh, thought started uh, when we get back from the break. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Welcome to Do You Know? The question for this week is, what other Old Testament character besides Moses was told to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground? We'll give you a few moments to think about it and we'll be right back. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Christianity is ranked the largest religion in the world today. According to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, in 2010 there were 2.18 billion self-identified Christians around the world, making up nearly a third, 32%, of the global population. In the U.S., this included 246,780,000. That's 79.5% of the population in the U.S. as self-identified Christians. In comparison, the next largest religion in America are Judaism and Islam. Combined, they represent less than 3% of the U.S. population. That information is from about.com. The Word of God says in John 17, beginning verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they also may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. We're back with the answer. The question for this week was, what other Old Testament character besides Moses was told to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground? The answer is found in Joshua chapter 5 verse 15. The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals for your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Thank you for participating and look for the next section of Do You Know? Now that you've had your break, it's back to the program. All right. We hope you are ready to go. I got that one. You've got that one. You nailed it. Okay. All right. All right. We got one question left, and we've got just a few minutes to discuss it. From Michigan, the question was asked, a group we recently contacted believe in buying one cup during the Lord's Supper, believing that the contents of the cup represent Jesus' blood, but the cup itself represents the new covenant 
in reference to Luke 22, verse 20. I did notice that number four wasn't necessarily a question. It was more of a statement. Yeah, I got the whole email here. That's I had okay. To, I we just, don't, yeah. But the question is, what about that? Is that, yeah. is that? is it true that we need to be taking the Lord's Supper with the common cup? Yeah, uh, yeah. What about that? Okay. The, and, the, and he references, they, they're using Luke 22. Mm-hmm. Let's read that. Luke 22, verse 20. Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. said, it says, uh, first of all, verse 19, he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do and remember to me. Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Uh, and and so the, they they say that the cup is representative of the covenant. The, the bread is the body of Christ. The, the, the fruit of the vine is the blood of Christ. But the cup that contains the fruit of the vine is is a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus established. Now, yep. what would we say to that? I would reference Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. It tells me that the cup is not the covenant, but the blood is the sign of the covenant. Read that. Uh, how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. And so the blood represents the covenant, not the cup from that passage. And you've got some other uh, references, no doubt, to help us understand how why Jesus would use yeah. the word cup then. Yeah. To reference the, use, that. the use of the word cup is a figure of speech called metonymy. Uh, the American College Dictionary, in defining metonymy, metonymy, says it is the use of the name of one thing for that of another to which it has some logical relation, as scepter for sovereignty. In other words, you're talking about a king, and you talk about a king's scepter. You know, he wields his scepter with great power. Well, what you're talking about is that he that he exercises his authority as the king. The scepter is, is representative. Of his, uh, or someone might say, that guy has really been hitting the bottle. Yeah. Well, you're talking about him drinking alcohol, but right. you say he's really been hitting. But that's metonymy. We do that a lot. That's a yeah. figure of speech we commonly use. Well, I'll tell you one we might be more familiar with. Bring a covered dish to the potluck supper. Oh, yeah. You're just going to bring the dish, an empty dish with a lid on it? No, thanks, but no thanks. No, we want what's in it, right? right. But right. It, it's understood. That's metonymy. Okay. Now, uh, there's lots of – we could cite lots of instances where metonymy is used. That figure of speech is used throughout the scriptures. And I think that's what we've got when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, he said uh, – he gave the disciples the bread. He broke it, gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, Matthew 26, 27. He took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood. He took the cup, and he said, This is my blood. And then he, then he also went further and says, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you, my Father's kingdom. So the cup was equated to the blood, was equated to the fruit of the vine in Matthew chapter 26. The cup is just used as metonymy. We could say the same thing, Mark 14, 22, beginning Luke 22, which we already read. Um, even when Paul referenced uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we won't take time to read all that. It's very familiar to our listeners, I think. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23, uh, in the context of that, it says he took the cup. He says, as often as you drink it, yeah, you can't drink the cup. 
you drink this cup, he says. Now, let me, let me read that. Verse 20, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. You drink the cup. How are you going to drink the cup? How are you going to drink the cup? Can't do it unless you're talking about what's in it. Are we going to grind it up or something? Um, so I think that our one cup brethren have missed it on not recognizing the figure of speech of metonymy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've actually, and I really think they've added to the observance of the Lord's Supper by by designating a necessary third element. Yeah, the the bread, the fruit of the vine, and the cup. Uh, they're making a necessary element. Uh, no, again, emphasizing from 1 Corinthians 11, you have to drink the cup. How are you going to do that? Uh, but in, it, later in that text, in verse 27, he said, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, what's he doing? Yeah. He's guilty of the body and the covenant of the Lord, violating the... no. He's guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, All right. which I think is interesting. Okay. And, and then, uh, no, might go back to that Luke 22 again. In Luke chapter 22, uh, read the read a little fuller uh, passage here. He took the cup, verse 17. He took the cup and gave thanks and said, "Take this and divide it among yourselves." The cup was to be divided among. How they did they have a hammer there and they break it in pieces? Right. Yeah. He said no. They divided the contents of it. You know there there are historical indications of how Jews observed the Passover meal, mm-hmm. uh, and that and this was done at the Passover meal. Everybody would have had their own cup at, yeah. the, at the Passover table, mm-hmm. and so it's very likely, and most commentators agree that this would indicate he gave them this and told them to divide it into their several containers. Yeah. So they divided it among themselves, but they hadn't drunk it yet. Uh, he said, for I, I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine and, until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the New Testament of my blood which is shed for you. So Luke's account suggests they they poured the the fruit of the vine into their several drinking cups, and then they broke the bread and then they drank. Yeah. It, it seems pretty clear to me, and I think that, that you know another argument that's been offered, and I've heard quibbles about this, but another argument that has been made is consider the church in Jerusalem. So one congregation of people meeting in Jerusalem, the very first day that congregation yeah. began, they had three thousand people. Now. Uh, if there were 3,000, not not much later, there were thousands more. How are they going to take and use one cup in the observance of the Lord's Supper? Mm-hmm. Unless they had a cup as big as a wash tub. Yeah. You know, even even at that, it would have been a challenge to for thousands of people to participate. Monty. I believe one of the keys to this is where one of the passages says, and likewise they took the cup, and the other instead after the same manner. Well, the likewise or after the same manner was that he broke the bread and distributed it among them. 
Yeah. In the same way, he distributed the contents of the cup right. among them. So there's, the scriptures himself, is, I believe it's a necessary implication that there was more than one container used in this. Otherwise, if there wasn't a separate container, he couldn't have distributed among them. They wouldn't have been no likewise or after the same manner. All right. Guest uh, PWM in the chat room says it's clearly a figure of speech. Could substitute drink of my pitcher. Absolutely. I think we're on the same frequency there, guest PWM. And uh, Aaron in Baton Rouge says one reason 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is helpful here is that Paul is specific that the cup that is drunk is the same cup that represents the covenant, verse 25. They're not two different things. I think that's right. All right. Um, this doesn't prove anything, but just let me read what some uh, uh, commentators have said. Thayer's Greek-English lexicon says concerning the cup. This is all concerning the cup. By metonymy of the container for the contained, the contents of the cup, what is offered to be drunk. Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says it refers not to the cup but to its contents. The cup is used metonymously for what it contains. Figures of speech in the, New, in the Bible by Bullinger says in these and other places, cup is put for the contents of it. Yeah. Aren't in Greek, Greek and English lexicon says, the cup stands by metonymy for what it contains. Green's Greek-English lexicon says metonymy, the contents of the cup. And Robinson's Greek-English lexicon says the contents of the cup. Uh, no, excuse me. Uh, Robinson says a cup for the contents of the cup. And Barry's Greek-English lexicon says the contents of the cup. Yep. Everybody is agreeing. Uh, and so hey, I, and it's, it may sound picky. That doesn't necessarily prove it, it but, I mean, that's just a... a, a those who study the the use of language have said that's how it's used there. And uh, and people say, why in the world are you talking about that? Well, some people have said and claimed, well, if you don't have if you take it from more than just one cup, then you're doing wrong. And we're saying, well, no, the scriptures don't bind the one cup. They're not teaching us that we have to take of one cup. Uh, it is permissible. You could. you could, you could, you could. I have I've been places where they did before, and I've I've participated in the Lord's Supper drinking from one cup. Wouldn't have to be a cup; could be a mug. Yeah. It could be a wash tub. Or a wash tub. Yeah. Wash uh, tub. In, unless you're in Indiana, it would be a wash tub. Yeah. Uh, um, Aaron, by email, has said, I myself have visited with a congregation that used only a single container, and I assume that they did so for the same reason the questioners suggest here, that is, that they thought they should. Yeah. I don't think that this view prevents me from being able to partake. I think there are some people in the congregation where I worship today that have faulty ideas about the supper, but that's between them and God and does not prevent me from partaking. So I don't believe that it is a barrier to participating in the supper with them. But if I were going to consider being a member of such a congregation, I would feel obligated to express to them my understanding that the cup Jesus took in Luke twenty two twenty is the same cup that he told them to divide among themselves in verse 17. And that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five beginning says the same cup that represents the new covenant is the cup that is drunk, not the cup that holds it. But I believe that this is related to the second question about whether one group can force an opinion on others. Even if I do not hold their position about the one cup, the use of one cup is acceptable way to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so it is a course of action that we can both agree is within the will of God. So I can take that path even if I believe that others are also acceptable. The use of multiple containers is an expedient that I can forego for the sake of peace. You know, I agree with that. But then that raises that that sort of raises another question and we're out of time but can i let them bind that that's not bound in scriptures you know that's the question no, in other words i can submit and it, you know i can i can i can 
partake of the Lord's Supper using one cup, but should I tolerate them binding something that's not bound in Scripture, binding? In other words, if they're just saying, in our opinion, it's better, we like it better, we prefer to do it this way, then I could say, yeah, okay, if that's, what's the, if that's the... If that's the majority opinion and that's the judgment of all, I can submit to that. But if they're saying you're sinning if you don't do it our way, then that's false teaching and we yeah. can't go with yeah. that. Yeah. And that. Just like Paul wouldn't yeah. submit to the circumcision right. Right. Yep. issue. Now, uh, guest PWM in the chat room says Catholic tradition gives their pastors power and authority over the congregation that is not biblical. This practice is a subliminal exercise of power. He's referencing to the, I guess, the priest or whatever they want to call him, is standing in front of the group and doling out the element. Yeah, but he, in the Catholic observance of Mass, they just the, the congregation just partakes the bread and, the, and only the priest drinks okay. the wine. Okay, Yeah. All right. Well, All right. we are out of time. We need to remind our listeners one more time about the special uh, Bible study coming up. Yeah, mark down your calendars July 21st and 22nd at the Memorial Building in downtown Columbia, a two-night study of homosexuality, what the Bible says, and how we should react in our increasingly tolerant age. How should Christians react to this important moral question? Memorial Building, July 21st, July 22nd, 2014, coming up in about a month. We look forward to you, if you're in the Columbia, Tennessee area, to come and join us for that important study. It is in the news every day. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, We need to be prepared to know what the Scriptures teach because there are religious people who are... Well, they're allowing the world to influence in their thinking on homosexuality. We want to know what the scriptures teach so we can be prepared to stand on those principles and share them with others. So you, we want to make plans to be here uh, the Memorial Building, Columbia, Tennessee, July 21st and 22nd, 2014. Look forward to you joining us there. Monty, thank you for being behind the board tonight and for your comments. Thank you, Jacob. Those. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for joining us. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. We hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.